and we'll speak in a moment a little bit about OTGAR. But we are really delighted um, to be welcoming um, Professor William Travers, who needs no introduction to this audience. He's the Professor of International Law at Middlesex, um, also has a chair at Leiden in International Human Rights Law, is the author of more than 20 books in the field of international human rights law, um, has obviously had a um, particular interest in international criminal law, the development of international criminal law, but he, uh, he tells me that he's also had an interest in the South African Constitutional Court and didn't know that he was there when the Con uh, Constitutional Court convened for its first hearing in 1995 to hear the challenge on the death penalty. Um, he's here, of course, to talk about his new book, The Trial of the Kaiser, um, which is, uh, I'm sure, a fascinating read. And just to tell those of you who'd like to purchase it, we do have a representative from OUP here, Jack, who's sitting in the front, who'll be available to take your cards at the end of it if you'd like to, to buy it. And it seems a very timely book in many ways. I, I think that I've just read a book which tells me that since 1990 we've seen 67 cases of heads of state being prosecuted, which is sort of 10 times or more than 10 times what had happened in the previous 30 or 40 years. Interestingly, half of those prosecutions have been for grave human rights abuses and half of them for corruption. And at times, prosecutors have had to decide which ones they're going to choose. I'm always trying to understand the link between human rights and corruption. And it may well be that international criminal law, or if you're thinking about crime, is where the connection is most vivid. Anyway, we really look forward to hearing what you have to say about the book. It is, this is meant to be a discussion format, so we will um, we'll have time for questions and, um, and commentary afterwards, so please uh, feel free to do so. And in the meantime, I'm just going to hand over to Eva to say something about OTGR. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kate, for this. Uh, welcome, everybody. It's great to see so many of you this afternoon. Welcome to Professor William Shabas. We're very Honored to have you here discuss your new book with us. Uh, my name is Ivo Gruev. I'm doing my DPhil at the Center for Socio-Legal Studies, and I'm the convener of Oxford Transitional Justice Research, um, one of the organizations co-hosting the event today, together with the Bonavero Institute. Um, I see many familiar faces from the OTJR context here, but for those of you who are not familiar with us, we've been running for more than 10 years now. Uh, we are hosted or anchored at the Center for Criminology at the law faculty just across the road. And uh, our aim is to provide an interdisciplinary platform for discussing any issues related to transitional justice, broadly defined. And uh, we exist uh, thanks to the very generous donation of the Planethood Foundation run by the um, Ferenc family. And uh, we're very happy to see that um, Don Ferenc is in the audience as well with us here today. So without further ado, thank you very much. And um, I hand over to Professor Shabas for his presentation. Okay. Just a quick note, the presentation will be recorded, but not the Q&A session afterwards. Oh, sorry. Thank you, Eva, uh, for, for organizing the visit. And uh, thank you, Kate, for hosting me here at, the, at your wonderful center. Uh, it's a delight to be here, and I still remember watching you sitting on the bench uh, some years ago when the Makwanyani case was heard by the South African Constitutional Court. I had been sent there, which is the first time I visited South Africa, as the trial observer of Amnesty International uh, and uh, watched this wonderful new court deal with and issue this fabulous judgment. Makwanyani, Roger Hood is here, knows all about the Makwanyani case. And, and its importance for international uh, human rights law. This is indeed an anniversary, it's a, a 100th anniversary of the uh, efforts at the Paris Peace Conference to bring Kaiser Wilhelm II to justice and the um, short-term gain of the Paris Peace Conference was a clause in the Treaty of Versailles, Article 227, that said that they were going to request the surrender of Kaiser Wilhelm and um, that there would be a trial organized by an international court. So this was a first. It had never happened before. There had never been an international criminal court before. Really, there hadn't been an international court at all. Uh, the Permanent Court of International Justice had, had yet to be established, although it was in the works and was going to be set up uh, a year later. But this was really this was the beginning of international justice and of international institutions to adjudicate international law. So very significant anniversary, and one that I think is of more than historical interest. Uh, yesterday, the appeals chamber of the International Criminal Court 
issued a long-awaited decision about the alleged immunity of President al-Bashir of Sudan, who was charged a decade ago by the International uh, Criminal Court. The, issue, the war, arrest warrant was issued just about exactly a decade ago. And of course, he has traveled around and kind of thumbed his nose at the International Criminal Court. So that lengthy judgment is 200 pages long. I haven't had time to digest it all. But I can tell you that there's a discussion about 1919 in the judgment, and a, quite a lengthy one, where the, the judges of the appeals chamber of the International Criminal Court uh, study the discussions at, uh, prior to and during the Paris Peace Conference for evidence of the status of customary international law dealing with the alleged immunity of a head of state. So all of that is there in the in the in the story of the trial of the Kaiser. I, I was asked uh, earlier, uh, you know, how did you find this topic? Why did you write about it? And I think it's always something of interest to research students who are sometimes struggling to find the right topic trying to figure out what to write about, what their thesis will be on, and, uh, and, and how, do you, how do you craft a topic? I have to say, I didn't actually <coughs> sit down saying, hmm, I guess I'll write a book about the trial of the Kaiser. It was something that, that evolved over time. Uh, I have developed an interest in recent years in the history of international law. And that goes beyond reading the classic documents of international law, but has led me to uh, mysterious places, at least for lawyers, called archives. And I uh, even, last week I was at the National Archives, I'm looking for another topic, and I'm there trying, plowing through files, trying to unravel uh, material and see where it leads me. Uh, I stumbled upon something quite fascinating last week in the National Archives in one of the files preparing the prosecutions for the end of the Second World War. And there was a curious letter from a commercial operation in London of rope manufacturers offering to provide free of charge to the British government a rope so that they could hang the Nazis. And there, it's in the National Archives in an envelope. <laughs> is a sample of the rope that they sent. <laughs> I, have a, I took photographs of all of this, so I have a sample of the rope, and they said as soon as the Foreign Office could provide them with more specific details, they could actually prepare the rope with the noose that could then be served for the, for the hanging of the Nazis. That was in 1944. So I don't know if that'll be the next book, but it, you know these, these things lead to places. And my original idea, when I planned the book, was to actually write a fictional book. Uh, I, I have never really done that. I've, I've been accused of writing it, <laughs> but I've never actually written fiction deliberately. And I had this idea of writing uh, something about the trial that never did take place, because, of course, I've watched a lot of international criminal trials and attended them and followed them. I know the personalities who inhabit international justice, the judges and the prosecutors and the defense lawyers. And so I thought, well, I could, this trial never took place, so I could kind of make it up. And I started doing it. But as the research proceeded, I found that the, 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 the factual material was just so fascinating that it would destroy it to try and repackage it as fiction. That people wouldn't, wouldn't be able to distinguish between the fact and the fiction, and so I sort of retreated to more familiar territory, which was a, a, a factual account of this uh, strange period in, in history. So let me just hit a few of the highlights, and then we'll, I'll stop, and we'll have time for questions and, and discussion about this. The, uh, the story really begins, the, the, the idea of justice at the end of the, of the First World War uh, had, had emerged rather early during the war. Uh, for example, when the Lusitania was sunk, this famous sinking off the coast of Ireland in 1915, there was a, a call, there was even a coroner's jury in Ireland that said that the Kaiser should be brought to justice for doing it. But really most of the attention in terms of justice was on classic war crimes, violations of the laws, and customs of war. 
And there wasn't serious talk other than that episode with the Lusitania that it would go to the highest levels. They were looking more at prosecuting low-level perpetrators. And there was a certain amount of activity that went on during the war. At times, they would cool it down because they were concerned that if they talked too much about prosecuting the Germans for war crimes, the Germans would be doing the same. Uh, and they were nervous about the reciprocity of it, the reciprocal dimension. And in fact, in, in 1918, when Germany negotiated a peace agreement, really dictated a very nasty peace agreement to Romania, this was before the war was over, they put in clauses about prosecuting the Romanians. And in the Bundestag, a deputy said, you know, we should be careful about this. If we threaten, if we threaten to prosecute the Romanians for war crimes, maybe the Allies will want to do the same to us when the war is over. But the Germans were still very confident until about the middle of 1918 that they were actually going to win the war. And they hadn't understood that the, that the tide was turning, particularly with the entry of the United States into the war. But it was all kind of chaotic. French soldiers were mutinying, uh, sailors were mutinying, and they were rebelling, and nobody, nobody really knew in 1918 how this was all going to end. And then suddenly, the Central Powers collapsed. And Kaiser Wilhelm left Berlin and went to the army headquarters on the Western Front, which was inside the Belgian border in the town of Spa. And he met with his generals there to plan the next stage in the war. This is the beginning of November 1918. And then reports came about Berlin being in flames. There was an uprising. The red flag was flying on the Reichstag building. And uh, there was a, uh, and Kaiser Wilhelm turned to the generals and said, get the troops together. We're going to have to march back to Berlin and put down this uprising. And the generals turned to them and said, I don't think the troops are going to go with you. In fact, you better look out. They may be, they may be after your head as well. And this was now some months after the reports of the murder of the Romanovs in, in Russia, in the Soviet Union. And all of the crown heads and their families within Europe were, were anxious. They were nervous about the future of monarchy as an institution. And so the Kaiser very, very quickly, his wife was still in Berlin, and he didn't think to go and fetch her or do anything. That came a little later. Instead, he just figured he'd make a run for it. So he got on his imperial train, which was not only how he traveled, but where he liked to stay when he was moving around. He didn't stay in the hotel in Spa or with the generals. He stayed on the train, and they decided to go. They didn't have many options. He wasn't going to go back to Germany, and he couldn't go south to France. And so they headed north to the Netherlands. One of the great mysteries about this that I must say I didn't succeed in, in unraveling any more than others have done, it's an obsession among the Dutch historians, is whether the Kaiser was invited by the Queen of the Netherlands to go there. We don't know. There are a number of factors that suggest that he had got the green light from, the, from, the, um, from the, the, the Queen of the Netherlands. Uh, the government denied it afterwards. They were accused of having cooked it all up with the Kaiser, the Dutch government. Uh, but they denied it strenuously and said, no, I won't bore you with all the details about it. It's of great interest in the Netherlands, but maybe not so important to the rest of us whether or not she gave them the green light. We know that he arrived at the border uh, on the 10th of November. So a day before the armistice that ends the war. Uh, he, he, he wasn't in the train anymore. They'd taken a decision after they left Spa that it was too dangerous. He was afraid of being lynched by German soldiers. And so he let the train proceed and got in a motor car. There were two motor cars with some of his, his close staff. And they drove to the border. It was an hour, an hour and a half's drive. And then arrived there and said, I think you're expecting me. And the guard at the border said, no, not that I know of. <laughs> so if you, just, if you just mind waiting. And they said, well, can, can, we come in, can I come into the station and wait? He said, no, you, you have to wait on the Belgian side of the border until I get the go-ahead. And so there's a fascinating story about, about all of this. But finally, the Dutch government agrees that he can come for a little while. And the queen 
calls up, they go shopping for a place to put them. And the queen finds a friendly Dutch aristocrat and asks if you know he could look after the Kaiser for, she said, probably three days. Well, <laughs> we all know the story about the house guests who stay for three days. <laughs> the Kaiser ends up staying with the count for 18 months. Uh, and it turns out the count's son is a diplomat in the Dutch Foreign Service. He gets called back and they say, go and live with your dad for a while and keep an eye on this guy, the Kaiser, who's staying there. Well, so the Kaiser's there. He's, he's been given a form of asylum, but temporary in nature in the Netherlands. And all of a sudden then, this idea of putting him on trial starts to gain traction. On the 13th of November, so two days after the armistice, there's a meeting in Paris of George Curzon, who is a senior official, and he's in the Imperial War cabinet. I'm trying to think of the person he corresponds to in modern-day British political life. Sort of like Michael Gove, you know, kind of close to the prime minister, but, you know, and maybe dreaming of getting the job at some point. Um, and he goes to Paris and meets with Georges Clemenceau, who's the French prime minister, the French premier. And Clemenceau, it seems, has already had been discussing this idea of trying the Kaiser. He's had two senior French legal academics prepare kind of a briefing on a, a paper, a study on the question. And Curzon was taken immediately by the idea. They kind of agree. Curzon goes back to London and says to Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, what do you think of putting the Kaiser on trial? Lloyd George likes the idea. And they, there are some hesitations in the cabinet. Churchill is hesitant. Lord Reading is hesitant. But finally, they carry the day. So this all happens in the space of a few weeks after the armistice. And then in early December, uh, the British host a meeting in London where Clemenceau comes and Orlando, the Italian uh, prime minister. They want to have an American representative there, but the Americans decline. And the Americans show at this very early stage that they are kind of lukewarm about the subject, maybe even negative. And that becomes a central theme in the discussions about trying the Kaiser. Um, so they decide that these three leaders of the, the three European leaders of the Allied powers decide in early December that yeah there should be a trial of the Kaiser, and then the discussion is then postponed until the peace conference begins late in January of 1919. Well, the peace conference agrees to set up a body to study the subject of post-war prosecutions, including the Kaiser, but it's not just about the Kaiser. Nevertheless, the Kaiser becomes really the main act in the discussions. And they set up this body called the Commission on Responsibilities. Now, most international criminal law students, students of public international law, know of the Commission on Responsibilities. It's, in all the, it's referred to in all the textbooks. They know about the report because it issued a report uh, at the end of its work, at the end of March of 1919 difficult to read. I'd read it many times without really being able to sort it all out because half of the report is a dissent by the American. There's also a dissent by the Japanese. Um, it's quite confusing and it's repetitive. I have my own theory now about why, why the American dissent is so repetitive. It's because it was written by two people. And, you know, They agreed to write the thing and then they each wrote half of it and they just glued it together and they didn't do a proper editing at the end. There were two members of the American delegation to the Commission on Responsibilities. And then the other thing about it is that the Commission on Responsibilities report doesn't really bear any resemblance to the Articles of the Treaty of Versailles. And I didn't know why that happened, but I think I know now, and it's because the heads of state uh, who met at the Paris Peace Conference after the Commission had finished its work uh, basically dismissed the report of the commission. They didn't agree with it. I don't think that, I think they must have got some kind of an executive summary because my impression is that the leaders didn't actually read the report of the commission on responsibilities. So it wasn't really very influential in the lawmaking part. It was more of a preparatory document. That said, for students of international criminal law, this is just a fascinating 
period, this Commission on Responsibilities assembled 15 of the top international lawyers in the world at the time. It would be like taking the International Law Commission uh, or a body like the Institut de Droit International, where you've really got the elite of the international legal community. Um, you had three or four future judges of the Permanent Court of International Justice. We're talking about a body of 15 members. Three of the editors of the three main international law journals. So you had two from, there were two from each of the five big powers of so the United States, Britain, France, Italy, and Japan. And then they agreed reluctantly that they would let the smaller powers participate and attend. Okay, kind of like the Security Council. <laughs> really, that the tension that we see to this day between the great powers who want to run the show and little powers who want to at least be able to let off steam in the meetings, um, you see it there in 1919. So they reluctantly agreed to let smaller countries have some representatives. And so it was agreed finally that Greece could have a representative. And Greece sent one of the greatest international lawyers of the period, Nicolaus Politis, participated in it. Belgium, of course, Belgium in the sense the main victim. Um, and they sent uh, 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 Roland Jacquemin, who would go on to be a judge at the permanent court. So they, they had really terrific people there. And they spent the better part of two months trying to create the system of international criminal law. It had never been done before. And they looked back for guidance on, they looked for precedents, there were none. They looked to what had been done with Napoleon in, 19, in 1815. And uh, it, when we look back there, we find that this, this idea even of putting him on trial was so remote. When, when Napoleon uh, surrendered to the British, the British uh, had, a, had a call from the Germans who said, hand him over to us, we'll kill him. <laughs> and, Wellington, who was more of a decent kind of a person, didn't believe in just summary execution, said, no, 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 we're not going to hand them over to you. We'll keep them, and maybe we'll have a trial. And so then the lawyers here discussed what to do, uh, what they could do with Napoleon. And they said, well, we can't have a trial because he didn't violate our laws. There was no sense in 1815 of international crimes, of international laws that could be violated by an, by an individual. And they said, well, we can't try him here. Only the French could try him for treason. And so they approached the French and said, would you like him back? And you can try him for, prison, for treason. And the French said, no, 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 we don't want him back. You can keep him. And so they, they, they were concerned then. They said, well, what are we going to do with him? And, uh, you know, if you think that in uh, 2001, that George Bush had a brilliant idea in thinking that you could take people and put them on islands in the Atlantic or in the Caribbean and forget about them and never put them on trial. Actually, the British government had thought of it earlier, in 1815. And so they found another island and they put them there. But they, they enacted special legislation to deal with it because the, the, the members of the cabinet in 1815 were concerned that Napoleon would get a writ of habeas corpus. And he might have, who knows. Um, today, even if something similar happened and you couldn't succeed with the writ of habeas corpus, you'd go to Strasbourg and you'd, you'd win there. So this, this was all, the only precedent that they really had to go on. And so they were creating this system. There was a great deal of lawmaking that went on in 1919 at the Paris Peace Conference. And this international criminal law uh, development was only a part of it. It's interesting to see the different personalities who were there and how they reacted. Some of them, this was the case of the, the British Solicitor General, um, Pollock, just loved the opportunity. It was like, we, we get to make this all up. We get to create a new system. And you could see the, the excitement and the pleasure they had in really just making up new law. They realized what an extraordinary uh, unique opportunity that they had, a little window where they could just take the law and advance it uh, uh, greatly. And then there were others. The American representative, Robert Lansing, was one of them who's a conservative, didn't see the opportunity, didn't want to change anything, 
and he was resistant to the whole idea. Very striking, by the way, the contrast between the positions of the British and the Americans, 1919, where the British are keen on the trial and the Americans are not, with 1945, where it's the opposite, where it's Robert Jackson and the Americans who are pushing for a trial and Churchill and uh, the, the uh, Lord Chancellor are, are saying, trial's not a great idea. We tried 1919, it didn't work. It's too unpredictable. They might get acquitted. We don't want to have a trial. And they were, as you may know, Churchill was in favor until June of 1945, a summary execution. And I found in my more recent work, they even had people in the Foreign Office prepare lists. And they debated who should be on the list, who should not be on the list. They talked about putting industrialists on the list. At one point, they, the Foreign Office people decided not to put any of the commercial, industrial people on the list. Then Clement Attlee said, he was enough of a socialist because they, you know, we have to try them. So he, he, he wrote a little paper saying, put some industrials on the list so that we can execute some of them and teach a lesson to all of the other uh, businessmen about how to behave. That's 1945. So the Commission on Responsibilities has this, this issues this report, and it's just fascinating reading. And one of the things that um, I stumbled upon in doing it that I wasn't aware of, not only did I find the the, the, the minutes, it's not even clear whether they were official minutes that were taken of the sessions of the commission and of the three subcommissions. But in the archives, uh, the US archives, the British archives, the French archives, we find uh, sets, different sets of minutes because there wasn't actually an official set of minutes taken in most of these meetings. The individual participants took their own minutes. And you know, it would be like, we've probably all been in a meeting where a bunch of people take notes, and if you collected the notes from them at the end of the meeting, you realize you were at the same meeting, but the notes would be different. And that's the way it is with the Commission on Responsibilities. So, and, and for some of the meetings, I found seven sets of minutes in three different languages, English, French, and Italian. Um, and often, the English minutes involved recording not what the French delegates said in French, or the French, because the, the Eastern Europeans all spoke French as well, the Greeks spoke French, the Poles spoke French, but they were recording what the interpreter gave them of the, of the French, and that was what went into the minutes. So you, it's trying to figure out what's going on in the meeting where you've got six or seven different accounts. Absolutely fascinating. And, uh, so I had great pleasure uh, doing that. It's all referenced in the book. The footnotes if you want to track them all down. They are, a lot of this material is, is available online. I won't say readily available. Most of it's on PDFs of individual microfilm pages in the US archives. You do have to know where to look. Um, you could spend a lot of time and make no progress at all because you can't search it. It's, it's their photographs. You can't search them. And uh, they're not properly indexed either. But they're there. So they issued their report. This takes us up to the end of March of 1919. And then it goes to the real decision makers. And the decisions are being taken in a little room with rarely more than seven or eight people in the room, uh, mainly the four leaders uh, the, of the big four, as they were called, of Italy, France, Britain, and the US. Sometimes the Japanese were there, and they call it the big five. But the Japanese weren't really interested in the justice issue uh, for, uh, uh, with respect to Europe. They didn't participate very much in those discussions. So early in April, these leaders, Woodrow Wilson, David Lloyd George, Georges Clemenceau, and Orlando of Italy, sit down to discuss what to do about the Kaiser. And they spend the better part of two days debating this talking about international law. Again, to think of the equivalent today, could we imagine the, uh, a meeting lasting two days with sophisticated discussions of international law involving Donald Trump yes. and Theresa May and Vladimir Putin and 
And maybe Emmanuel Macron would be just a little further, you know, more, more sophisticated brass, but it's really stunning. To, and, and so these discussions took place over two days. There were no minutes taken. It was agreed there would be no minutes. There was an interpreter, English to French. Most of the discussion of the big four was going on in English because two of the four were Anglophone, Woodrow Wilson and David Lloyd George, and Clemenceau was fluent in English. And poor old Orlando sort of sat in the corner. It wasn't a big part of the meeting. Uh, and he had a French interpreter there translating for him. Well, the French interpreter, I don't know how he did it, but he took notes. And he wrote up notes of the meeting. They were interpreter's notes. They weren't meant as, a, as minutes or a transcript. And they were never authorized subsequently by the participants who read them and said, no, that's not quite what I said. And they were published posthumously in the 1950s by his estate. So nobody knew about these minutes until the 1950s. And then they've been subsequently published in a translation into English. So it's the translation into English of what the French interpreter had translated from English, you know. Um, so you can, you can work with the French and the, and the English. And I preferred to go as far back as I could along the, the chain to the, to the French version. And they spent two days discussing this. At the end of the two days, Wilson, who had been resisting <coughs> doing this, his Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, was opposed to the idea of a trial. Lansing had given Wilson a memo uh, some days earlier saying, this is a rotten idea. Don't have a trial. Never agree to it. We could have some sort of a political condemnation of the Germans for uh, a supreme of the Kaiser. We could have some sort of political condemnation of him for a supreme offense against international morality and the sanctity of treaties, but we can't have a trial. And after two days of these meetings, Wilson, who didn't talk to Lansing, he was only the Secretary of State, but we've seen a president who's had difficulty communicating with his ministers recently. It was like that. They just didn't talk. They hated one another. And and Wilson went back to his rooms. He was not well that week. His doctors reported he wasn't well physically. He was very ill. He wasn't maybe entirely stable mentally either at the time. He agreed to compromise. He went back to his rooms and he wrote out, this is the President of the United States himself, wrote out a draft clause for a trial where they would try Kaiser Wilhelm for and then Wilson cherry-picked the phrase out of the memo from Lansing that was not meant to be a criminal charge. So, trying for a supreme offense against international morality and the sanctity of treaties. He went back the next day and saw the other three, and he said, here it is, sign. We're not going to discuss this, just sign. And Wilson and Lloyd George were, rather Lloyd George and Clemenceau, the British and the French, were thrilled because they succeeded. The Italians were also lukewarm, maybe more prepared to go along with the British and the French. They all signed, and that was it. They gave it to the drafting committee that made a few little changes to a few of the words, and that's what we get in Article 227 of the Treaty of Versailles. So that's, those are the travaux préparatoires of that article of the Treaty of Versailles. Um, the Germans resist. They set up a commission of four experts to study the clauses dealing with penalties. One of the members is Max Weber, the famous sociologist, philosopher. Max Weber helps to write a reply. And they say, of course, they go back to the, to the British and the Americans and the French and the Italians and say, we can't, no, we can't go along with this, change it. And they said, no, well, we can go back to war if you'd like. By this point, by this point they've got the entire German fleet at Scapaflow, and uh, the Germans say, You've got us. And so they signed. And, and then, then the story shifts to where will be the trial, how will it be organized, and how will they get the Kaiser. And that's the Dutch part of the story, um, mainly over the next seven or eight months until early 1920, when the Dutch just say, we're not going to have a moment. And so then the, the British and the French say, well, put him far away, out of harm's way, like what we did with Napoleon. They said, how about sending him to the Dutch East Indies, modern-day Indonesia? 
and uh, and they say, the, the Dutch say, well, that's too dangerous because he will appeal to Muslim nationalism in the Dutch East Indies. The Germans had already had a reputation for doing this in the colonies of the British and the French. We're not going to put it there. We said, well, what about the West Indies, like Curacao? And the Dutch said, no, it's too humid, and there are too many diseases there. <laughs> and uh, you would think going to the Caribbean wouldn't be that <laughs> They said, it would be very dangerous for the, for the wife of the Kaiser, who was in frail health. <coughs> and so they said, we'll put him somewhere very safe, very far away from the German frontier, Utrecht. <laughs> 50 kilometers away. But it doesn't, the province of Utrecht is the one Dutch province that doesn't have uh, an international border. It's landlocked in that sense. So we'll confine to Utrecht. He'd already bought a castle there in Utrecht, in Dorn. And so then Queen Wilhelmina issued this decree, and that's, that's where it all stops. So there was work that had been going on since the treaty was signed in June in the uh, in the Home Office here by lawyers preparing the case. A pathetic effort. They had put, they put some senior uh, solicitor in the Home Office on preparation of the case. He relied on published sources. There were no investigators. There was no, I mean, it, it was an extraordinarily amateurish effort. And there's no evidence of any serious attempt to coordinate the preparation of the trial with the French and the Americans and the Italians. So even if, if the Kaiser had surrendered in January of 1920 and said, OK, I'm going to face the music, let's, let's do that, it, they wouldn't have been prepared. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't even know what Article 227 of the Treaty of Versailles actually meant. Um, so, yes, it's called the trial of the Kaiser, but there was no trial. You knew that before we started. Um, there is some other, there is some, there's, a, there's a great deal of legal interest in it because it's the, it's the beginning of something. I think that's really what's fascinating about it and watching that, those attempts at lawmaking. There are some sort of very entertaining uh, parts of the story that don't really uh, contribute to the, the legal interest in them. And one of the chapters in the book that I had a great deal of pleasure researching and writing was about an, an attempt in, at the beginning of January 1919. So this is, Kaiser's only been in the Netherlands at this point for eight, seven weeks. And there were, there were sort of a, some idle American officers led by a former a senator from Tennessee. He'd been the youngest senator in the history of I think of the United States at that point. He wasn't 30 when he was elected in 1911. Sort of a boy wonder, very good at business. He founded, those of you who know Tennessee, you know the main newspaper, the Tennessean in Nashville. He founded that. His name was Luke Lee. And then he didn't get reelected to the Senate, so he decided to raise a, a, a unit for the, uh, for the war. And they went overseas. And so the war's over, and they're sitting around in the evening, maybe they have a little bit too much to drink, and they don't quite know what to do. And Luke Lee says, let's go up to the Netherlands, let's just drive up and kidnap the Kaiser. <laughs> and bring him, it's true, I'm not making this up, go up and kidnap him, and bring him to Paris, and give him to President Wilson when he arrives for the peace conference. And so there, there, are, there are four of them, uh, Luke Lee, he goes back later and becomes a banker in the United States. He goes to jail for a while for things unrelated to this story. Another one of his, his accomplices uh, goes back. He be, he's a big sports entrepreneur. He becomes the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers and other baseball teams. So not uh, inconsequential individuals. To, uh, and they recruit three or four uh, soldiers uh, who assist them. And so seven of them drive up. To, uh, to the castle, the castle of the Count, where the, where the Kaiser is staying. This is early January of 1919. And uh, they, it's a long story how they get in there. They get to wear their uniforms. The Dutch uh, chargé d'affaires in Brussels gives them a, a laissez-passer, saying you can go there, wear your uniforms. Um, they lie about why they're there. The American ambassador in 
Brussels looks the other way and giving them travel documents. And they get into the castle. And uh, you know, the, the, the count's son, the diplomat, comes to meet them and says, so what are you here for? They say, well, we're here to see the Kaiser. They say, well, tell me what it's about, and I'll ask him if he wants to see you. And they say, we can't tell you. We have to tell him. You know, the story. You know. When I practiced law, I used to have that with people trying to get into my office. And the, the secretary would say, tell me what it's about. No, I can only tell him. So it's like that. And uh, so the Kaiser says, no. The Kaiser refuses to see them if they don't say what it's about. And then the Kaiser, apparently, they go back and forth two or three times like this. At one point, the Count says, well, make yourself at home. The Count's son, the diplomat. And he has the butler go in and offer them cigars and water to drink. And he looked at the water. He, later, he said, well, he thought because they were Americans that you know prohibition had already started in the United States. It was about to start and that Americans didn't like to drink. But the, the colonel and his friends quickly explained that that only applied back in the United States, you know. And so they brought some champagne. And so they're sitting there drinking champagne, smoking cigars, and meanwhile, the, the, the diplomat has called the Dutch authorities and the castle gets surrounded by Dutch soldiers. So after a couple of hours, the Americans realize that they're really grossly outnumbered, and there's no question of doing this peacefully, and they're and so they make a run for it. And on the way out the door, the guy who goes on to be the president of the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers thinks about pocketing a little souvenir. So he sees an ashtray, okay? So everyone, remember, you know what an ashtray is? We used to have them, okay? And uh, they, he takes an ashtray that has the Kaiser's, he thinks, has the Kaiser's monogram on it. So he just slips it into his pocket. A butler sees them sees them you know, taking the ashtray. And so they get in their cars, and then they start making a run for the border, the, the, the Americans. And the butler then tells the people, so, you know, one of them took the ashtray. So this really gets the Dutch authorities upset. So <laughs> the idea of eight soldiers under false pretenses in uniform coming into a neutral country to try and kidnap a head of state, a former head of state, who's been given asylum you know, they don't get too worked up about that, but stealing an ashtray. This is, you know, you've crossed the line. And so they go in hot pursuit, but the Americans get to the border before, um, and, and so the guy has the ashtray. De decades later, he was boasting about having stolen the ashtray and having him kept keeping it on his desk um, over the years, and somewhere, I guess, one of his grandchildren has the, has the ashtray somewhere, we suppose. Um, so that, that's one of the sort of colorful bits of the story. But at, at heart, it's a, it's, a legal, it's a legal text. It's legal history. Um, there are I don't know, 60 pages of footnotes, in the, lots of footnotes. So it, 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 you know, it's, as we say in the field, it's, a, it's refable. Uh, I, everyone know what I'm talking about? The ref, the, 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 the research assessment that we have to, we're getting ready to do. And my university's done. That book, you know, it's, it's definitely uh, got, got those elements. Um, I had hoped that you know I wanted it to be published in. A, I mean, I really wanted it to be the kind of book you see in W. H. Smith's and in Airport, and I haven't quite got that far. I've had uh, some wonderful book reviews. Stephen Sedley, who's sitting here in the room, wrote a, uh, a lovely book review in the LRB, and then it's been reviewed also in the in the TLS and in the New York Review of Books most recently. So that had never happened to me before. And so I was thrilled by that. When I uh, reached agreement with Oxford to publish it, the, my one anxiety was that, of course, uh, Oxford books are legal books are notoriously expensive. And uh, some of you have published with Oxford, and you know that you know, you tell your friends that, oh, my new book is out and it's published by OUP, and they say, oh, well, I'll, I'll get the librarian to order it, you know, <laughs> because it's going to be 100 pounds or something. And uh, so I spoke to the commissioning editors at OUP and said, I hope it'll come out in paperback. And they said, actually, even better. They said, we're going to publish it in an accessible hardback. So the book there 
sells at retail, if you go into Blackwell's, 25 pounds, which is, yeah, that's not bad. <laughs> I, I can sell it, actually. I will sell it for 17 pounds. Uh, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's almost, you might as well buy two or three. <laughs> um, and we don't need the credit card. I have, I've learned from experience that one needs change for a 20. So uh, anyway, that, that's been wonderful because it's made the book uh, more accessible. And uh, just anecdotally, people like my father and my best friend from primary school and people like that have been reading it. And it's got the law in it, but it's also got these entertaining stories about, about the, uh, uh, the American attempt to kidnap the Kaiser, which, you know, is also, it's kind of the forerunner, I, 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 it's forerunner of, of something that happened in 1960 in Buenos Aires, when the, the Mossad uh, this time succeeded. They were a little more efficient than these cowboys from the United States. Um, but it is kind of the same idea that you, um, you, you bring somebody to, to justice in that matter. I, didn't get into the fiction part of it, what the trial would be like. We all wonder what, what might have happened. Uh, I mentioned how the British were woefully unprepared for it. We don't know what the tribunal would have been like. Uh, the Treaty of Versailles talks about five judges, one from the United States, one from the UK, one from France, one from Italy, and one from Japan. But by January of 1920, the Americans had made it clear they weren't going to ratify the Treaty of Versailles. So would they have had a judge? How would that have worked? We don't know any of that. The final chapter is called, was entitled, Was He Guilty? And there I speculate uh, about how the legal issues would have been developed, how they would have interpreted this clause, uh, the supreme offense against international morality and the sanctity of treaties. Did that involve starting the war? as well as the violations of the, of the laws of armed, of, of the, of the laws of war, the, the classic war crimes, and, that, and they were debating that. Those are, that's the other thing, it, these were the first debates. People think that that debate about aggressive war starts with the Kellogg-Briand Act in, in 1928, but it's going on before then, from what I can determine, the first serious international legal debate about whether the waging of an aggressive war was contrary to international law, let alone be a crime that could be committed by an individual, was in those meetings in February and March and April of 1919. So full of that kind of information. I'll just conclude with one uh, final uh, comment. Uh, I, I mentioned the, the, the pleasure that I get out of doing this research in archives. Uh, you know, working in archives, the frustration of it sometimes is that you, you're sure there's a document there. There's a report of a meeting, uh, something that you know must exist, but you can't find it. You know, like the, is it the Higgs boson in, in, in physics or something? You know there's a particle out there because other things are behaving around it, but you can't find it. And I guess sometimes you just never find it. Sometimes the documents don't exist. The French archives are famous for this because Lots of materials missing. Some of it was stolen from them because you know they were occupied in 1940. The original of the Treaty of Versailles is supposed to be in the French archives. It's not there. Hitler stole it. He took it in the, in the, when France was occupied. So so sometimes you, you just don't find the documents, but sometimes you stumble upon documents that you weren't expecting to find, and that just lead you to new areas. Um, and it's probably not that you're the first person to have read them, but because you come to the material with your own eyes and in your own background, you see things and say, that's significant, and no one else paid any attention. So I, I just want to conclude by telling you something that, that I found doing this research. Um, there were not Today, if, if, let me say, today at the International Criminal Court, there would be hordes of human rights NGOs campaigning for various issues to be prosecuted, but that was not a feature at the Paris Peace Conference. 
from what I can determine, there was really only one group that was interested, or one constituency that was interested in the prosecutions. I came across a report from a body called the, or a document called the Scotch uh, Commission of Electors. The Scotch Electors. They said Scotch. We would say Scottish today, and the Scottish electors, the president of the Scottish electors, was a woman, which is kind of unusual in 1919. The secretary was also a, a woman. They were the two who signed the document. Of course, a little research showed me that this was a suffragist organization. They were campaigning mainly for, for, for the vote for women. And as you know, in, in December of 1919, that was the first election where, where women voted in this country. So they were campaigning for that, and they sent a document to the Paris Peace Conference. Like, We've had reports of women and girls being raped and abducted in northern France, the part that was occupied, and in Belgium. And if you're going to prosecute war crimes, you'd better deal with these crimes. And did a little more research and found that similar documents had been sent by women's organizations in the United States and in France. And this is quite extraordinary. If you read the official histories of the prosecution of sexual and gender-based violence by, by international justice, the, the, the official version is it didn't really start until 1993 at the Yugoslavia Tribunal and had been ignored prior to that. But it's not true. And there were very serious efforts by women's organizations to, to do this. Um, and that was, that's, I don't know if there's another book there. I'm not enough of an expert, need to study more about the feminist uh, organizations at the time and their attitude. You know, the women's organizations were, were quite divided uh, during the war. They were split. The Pankhurst family was split between the sort of the militarist wing, who all of a sudden the war broke out in 1914 and they said, get our sons and husbands to go out there to France and to the trenches, and the pacifist wing that said, we don't have any quarrel with our sisters in Germany and Austria. Um, and, and so there was, a, really, people have written about this, this dramatic division within the women's movement. And uh, it, it seems that the women's organizations that were campaigning for the prosecution were the militarist part. And the more pacifist women's organizations, their attitude at the end of the First World War was, okay, now the war's over. Now we can get back with our reconcile. So I know that we were, you know, it's transitional justice. Is it, it's called the transitional justice research yes. group. So this is transitional justice, and it's a kind of a classic divide that we still, or a debate that we still see today uh, between uh, those who, for whom post-conflict is about reconciliation and not necessarily about you know, unrelenting prosecution and those who just want justice to be done in the name of the victims. I'll stop there. I'd be happy to talk about the subject, your questions and comments. Thank you again for having me.